Yanali Espinel is the founder of the popular blog and YouTube channel, Miss Be Helpful. After paying $20,000 in credit card debt, she discovered a passion for financial literacy and started creating educational videos on personal finance, from debt to credit to investing. She currently serves as the Director of Educational Outreach at NextGen Personal Finance and is a member of CNBC's Financial Wellness Advisory Council. Meet the leaders shaping the new era of credit. This is the Vantage Core Podcast. Today, we talk to Yanelli Espinel, creator of Miss Be Helpful. Part one. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and my parents are from Dominican Republic. So they immigrated to the city and then raised our family there. So I'm from a very big family. This is always, you know, when you meet new people, there's like a fun fact that you usually have to share. My fun fact is always the same. I have eight brothers and sisters, have four brothers and four sisters. My mom was always taking care of the kids growing up. You know, having nine kids isn't easy. (laughs) So she was always just kind of caretaker and a housewife, just making sure everything was right at home, helping us with homework, picking us up from school. And my dad worked at a restaurant for 30 years, actually, before the restaurant closed down. And then he was driving a taxi cab in New York City for the rest of his years until he retired. We never talked about personal finance growing up. I think it was this just like kind of taboo topic because we knew that both of our parents kind of like didn't really have a lot of money growing up. And even then, like now that they're kind of running their own household, didn't really have access to a lot of money. So we just knew money was tight. And if my dad was in a good mood, maybe I asked him for a dollar or two. And if he wasn't in a good mood, you definitely don't want to ask him for money. <laughs> I got my first credit card when I was 18 years old. I was in college. I was a freshman. And I was kind of just like really not able to buy textbooks and get a laptop and do all those things you need to do when you're in college. And walking up and down you know, the college campus, there were certain banks and like different events where you could get a credit card. And, uh, and so I just was like, maybe that makes sense because I was working, but even you know, working minimum wage in college isn't a ton of money and textbooks were pretty expensive. So I ended up getting my first credit card. It was a student credit card. Yeah, when I was 18. I was super lucky to get a full scholarship to Brown University. I studied history of art and architecture, visual arts, and urban studies. I was one of those overachievers. I couldn't pick one major. And so I just kind of did all three. I concentrated in all three. I taught third and fourth grade. That was my first job after college. And now I sort of still teach. I teach people about personal finance. So in 2015, that was about two years after I kind of got serious about my finances on my own personal finances. I started making payments, more aggressive payments to my credit cards because after college, I had so much credit card. I think I had almost $20,000 across four different credit cards and really high interest rates, like 22, 24, 26%. So my goal was really to just like stop sending only the minimum because the minimum payment was keeping me in the cycle and the interest was just you know accruing so quickly. So I started to make aggressive payments and I paid off all the credit card debt in a little bit under two years. So once I did that, I was like, how is it possible that I was 18 and somebody handed me a credit card and didn't tell me anything about how it worked? It's just crazy. It's ridiculous. So I decided I wanted to do education, educating people about money and personal finance. And so I started posting videos on YouTube about credit. And I was like, this is how I messed up my credit score. This is how I fixed my credit score. This is what you need to know about credit cards and your credit score. And so those videos started doing really well. And then I just started posting more content about beyond credit, like saving and investing and budgeting and just showing people like, hey, this is how a regular, normal, low-income kid could go to college, graduate, get a job and actively prevent themselves from repeating the cycle of poverty. 
I was shocked, honestly, because when I posted them, I was like, oh, maybe I'll get like a couple hundred people to follow me, a couple hundred people to be part of this community where we all nerd out about money and like help each other find videos and links and resources. And maybe they ask me questions and I post videos in response to their questions to this little community. But really quickly, it was like a thousand subscribers, 5,000, 10,000. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, I think this, this is a bigger thing than I thought it would be, which is wonderful because I think for me, it just goes to show that there's a need. There is a need. People are looking to learn about credit and learn about money and saving and budgeting and investing, but they don't know where to go. It's not being taught in schools. Most parents and families don't talk about it because it's taboo. You know, your friends don't really talk about it much unless you have a really core type family, you know, a friend group that is comfortable talking about those kinds of topics. So I think that going to the internet, going to YouTube is probably just like a natural way for people to try to find those answers to the questions that they don't really know who else to ask. So I never really thought of myself as a businesswoman or an entrepreneur or anything like that. I just thought it was fun to make videos and I like talking a lot. And I especially like talking about money and personal finance and telling my story. So I really just thought it was more just like a hobby, you know, like bloggers and video content creators, they just post stuff for fun. But then recently there's this huge monetization around content that I saw sort of as an opportunity. I'm like, oh, wow. So I could actually make money from educating people. And so I, I did make Miss Be Helpful, the, the channel name that I have on YouTube is Miss Be Helpful. I did get the LLC, Miss Be Helpful LLC. And then I decided, okay, now I don't just want to focus on creating videos, even though that was the primary way for me to get information out there. But I also want to do workshops and courses so that people can, you know, learn at their own time, at their own pace and get like really comprehensive and holistic information kind of curated for them rather than like randomly just clicking through videos and like there's no rhyme or reason to the order and stuff. So I wanted to like create something a little bit more organized and structured, sort of like, like how I was in the classroom teaching my students, like a little bit more of a class structure. And so that's what I'm working on now. I'm trying to build out like this idea for, um, for courses. But before COVID, I was doing a lot of in-person workshops constantly at colleges, universities, teacher workshops, training, different companies and nonprofits would bring me in to talk to their workforce. And now I've been doing a lot of them virtually. But I think that the demand for courses that people can learn at their own pace is, is so big. So I think that's, that's kind of like my next goal is to really make sure I design a course that I feel like I wish I would have been able to take something like that when I was coming up out of college and trying to figure out money on my own. I mentioned earlier, I was very lucky because I didn't have student loan debt. When I got to college, it was on a full scholarship, which was partially an academic scholarship. And the other part was really much primarily just need-based financial aid. Again, you know, my parents are low-income and being part of the first generation of my family to go to college means nobody else before us really figured this out, really navigated this. So filling out the FAFSA and like filling out college applications, all of that, it was figuring all those things out for the very first time without a lot of help or support from my parents because they, you know, they don't even speak English. So for them to try to help me with that, it was a lot. So a lot of the support came from my school, like my college advisor, all of that kind of stuff was really helpful for me to just have that support in school. And so when I finally got to the college campus, I had this misconception in my head. I was like, oh, I'm going to get a brown and I'm not going to have to pay for anything. Like the tuition is paid, the room and board is paid, the meal plan is paid for by my scholarship. But nobody had had a serious conversation with me about what are some realistic expectations for what college life is going to be like. Because the social pressures, I was just not prepared. I was not prepared for that. Like everybody walking around wearing Uggs on campus, having a certain brand laptop or having certain brand name book bags and simple little things that you just don't think about. You don't really pay attention to that when you're planning for college. 
but the way that it affects you socially and mentally when you're on a college campus and you obviously don't have the things that everybody else does. It's a visual social cue that you feel like you have to participate in it so that you can fit in. And especially for a kid like me, like I talk different, I acted different. Like I was, I didn't have the level of vocabulary that I have today. I didn't have the confidence that I have today, you know, intellectually to be able to have conversations. Like I just wasn't there yet. And so I easily fell prey to that social pressure. And so I, when I got my first credit card, of course, I used it to buy a laptop and to buy things that I needed for school, books and supplies. But with the rest of the money, I just was buying clothes and shoes and Ben and Jerry's and Starbucks and going to the mall, shopping at Forever 21, H&M, all the things. So for me, it was really just, it was really a social pressure that led to a lot of debt, which is really sad because I do think that now it's a little bit more of a conversation because of social media. But back when I was applying to college in 2007, 2008, we weren't where we are today with social media. So people weren't really having conversations about social pressure and feeling like you have to keep up with those around you who may or may not be the same social class as you. So I think that now we're better positioned to have these conversations with young people. Whereas, you know, when I was going to college and generations before me, maybe just weren't really positioned to talk openly about this stuff. So I was really, really good about deadlines. That's one thing with me, right? As a, as a student who was really good academically in school, like I was nervous. I was afraid to like submit something late or to not study for an exam, right? So my homework was always in on time. I was very organized with my deadlines and, and things like that for schoolwork. And that transferred over, thank goodness, to my credit cards, because when I got my statements, PDF statements via email, or even back when I got printed statements in the mail, I would see that it said due date and minimum payment $25. And I'm like, all right, I have to make sure I send $25 by the due date. I can't miss that due date. So that discipline carried over from my academic setting into the credit cards and financial stuff, which was great for me. But making minimum payments when you have tens of thousands of dollars in debt is a sure shot way to keep you in debt for decades. So for me, that's the thing that I didn't realize that by just making a minimum payment, I was trapping myself in debt longer and incurring um, you know, a lot of credit card interest rate fees. So I just didn't understand that. And I think once I finally learned that, I was like, okay, so I'm really not being very smart by sending the minimum. You know, I think that at this point, I need to send way more, maybe double it or triple it if I can. And like, pick up extra side gigs to send even more money and just really getting purposeful and aggressive about trying to get the debt down to zero as quickly as I could. I think the big mistake we make is we just accept financial information without challenging it. So for example, when I went to the bank to get a student credit card, they told me that the credit card interest rate was 24%. I didn't ask any questions. I'm like, I don't know what that means, right? Like at the end of the day, Financial contracts can be negotiations before it's outlined in the contract. And even after a contract exists, you can negotiate it. So if you have a student loan, if you have a credit card, if you have a car loan, you should be calling these folks up, calling your lenders and asking, what can you do for me? Can you decrease my interest rate? Can I consolidate? What are the different options? Talk to me about my options. Because at the end of the day, if you just accept the terms that they present you with, you're probably accepting the worst possible terms that you could have and you it, without that conversation pushing back of, about asking for a lower interest rate for example you're not even taking steps to try to put yourself in a slightly better financial situation i think one of the biggest things especially for millennials the older millennials too like specifically are at that age where we're sort of transitioning to maybe like your second or third job out of college or or maybe you're in a long career path and you're like finally getting to that like, you know, about to be like 10 years or maybe five to 10 years of professional work experience. And so at this point in your life, 
you're making a little bit more money than you were making when you first graduated college. And the biggest mistake people make there, instead of pretending that you don't make more money and maintaining your budget and your lifestyle as if you had the previous salary that you got, what people do is they allow themselves to fall on prey to what's called lifestyle creep. So lifestyle creep is pretty much you get a pay increase and then you don't even feel like you got a pay increase because every time you get an extra bump on your paycheck, you spend it. And so now maybe instead of going to restaurants that have like 15 to $20 price points for their entrees, now you're going to restaurants that have 30 to $40 price points for their entrees, right? Like you're just slightly elevating your lifestyle because you're like, I work hard. I got a little pay bump. I want to feel that pay bump. I want to, you know, kind of reflect that in my life. I want to buy more expensive brands. Maybe I want to have a nicer car. Maybe I upgrade my cell phone to a slightly better one. And all these little decisions that seem like small little choices, they definitely can total up to a big financial impact on your money because you could be putting that money towards debt. You could be putting that money towards investing to build wealth. And instead, a lot of us tend to just spend it on things that make us feel like we have a slightly better standard of living, but we're essentially just prolonging the the amount of years that we have to keep working before we can retire. So I think lifestyle creep is definitely a big, a big dangerous one in a lot of millennials. And even the younger generation, Generation Z, tends to um, experience that too. I think early 20s, right out of college, the big mistake I made, and I see a lot of young people doing this today even still, is you don't understand how money works. You don't understand how credit works. You don't understand why your credit report is important or why, what your credit score is and why it matters. You don't even know what the interest rate on your student loans are. You don't really know your lenders, who they are, and logging into your portals. What are your usernames and passwords? Do you have that all sorted? Like very basic, simple things like that, like organizing your financial life. People in their early 20s tend to not really take that super seriously. And then when you get into your mid 20s and your late 20s, you're like, oh, I should probably get this all sorted out, right? Like, because you're kind of struggling to get by and to just kind of keep everything afloat and keep up with your payments. And until you hit rock bottom and you feel like you're kind of all over the place, that's when you kind of pick up and go, all right, let me put all these pieces together. But the best thing you can do in your early 20s is get a head start on organizing all of that. Have a spreadsheet with all of your accounts, all of your balances, your interest rates, who do you pay, where do you pay them, what portals, what are your usernames and passwords, really organizing all that information so that you are in control of your numbers and your money. And you can make choices strategically about these numbers by looking at the data. So many young people, they just don't even know. Like if I ask people like, hey, what's the interest rate on your credit card? I don't know. <laughs> what's the interest rate on your student loans? Oh, I don't know. I would have to like look at the, I would have to log in and look to see. But we should know these things. We should know these things just like we know our phone number. We should know these things just like we know our social security number because all of these numbers are part of our lives and they're all super important. I think now that I'm a little older, like I just, I'm in my thirties now this year and I feel like I'm starting to really think about the future more than ever before. You're in your early twenties, you don't really think about being 30 or 40 because it feels like, oh, it's so far into the future. But the reality is after all the research that I've done and all of the training sessions that I've done, the biggest thing that I think is, I wish I could teach it to myself when I was 21, when I was 18 is the earlier you start putting money into the stock market, the more money you will grow in that account over time. Because every year that you don't invest is a year of compounding that you are missing out on. And compounding, the way it works is at first, is barely noticeable. You don't even really feel it for years one, two, three, four, five, seven, nine, ten, all the way through maybe year 15. It, it barely feels like anything. But once you get past year 15, year 16, year 17, now you're in year 20, that's when you start to see the power of compounding like 
crazy, the exponential effect of that growth. And so the longer you wait to start, the more you're delaying that 15 year period of time that you have to wait before you can see the effect of compounding. So if you start when you're 18, nice. Now you're going to see it in your 30s. If you start when you're 20, you're going to see it in your early 40s. If you wait till you're 30 to start, you're not going to see it until your 50s and 60s. And that's why most people have to wait to 60 and 70 to retire because they didn't start investing until they were in their 30s or maybe their 40s. So if you're in your early 20s now and you have some debt, great. First things first, get a debt repayment plan in place, of course. But then the most powerful thing you can do is start setting aside a little bit of money from every paycheck and investing that money in the stock market. The reason why I say investing is so important first is because when you go to purchase things like a house or a car, big ticket items like that, the more cash you have up front, the less you have to borrow from a bank or a lending institution. And so credit to me is like super, super important because you know that to buy a house or to buy a car, it's really hard to pay for those things. People don't have a giant pile of cash lying around to pay for those things up front. So that's why I always say like, we'll start building that pile of cash then as early as you can, right? Investing is first. But I definitely think credit is up there. Top one, top two things that young people have to do as well, because ultimately you're going to need an apartment. You're going to need a car. You're going to need a house. And those things require a credit check. They require you to have a decent standing in terms of your financial credibility. And the best way to prove that you have a financial credibility is to allow them to check your credit report and your credit score. And so as confusing as people feel like credit is, it's actually very simple. It is literally a number that tells them how likely it is that you are going to pay them back in the next 90 days. <laughs> it's that simple because they just want their money. If they're going to lend you money, they want, they want to make sure they're going to get that money back. So they check your credit score. They look at that three-digit number. And that number, if it's high, means there's a high chance that you're going to pay them back in the next 90 days when you owe them a payment. If that number is low, on the scale, uh-oh, that's giving them a sign that you might not, based on your past payment history and based on what you've done before with other lenders, it doesn't look like there's a good chance that they're going to see their money back within 90 days when you owe it. So that is pretty much all it is. It's just a number that's indicating the likelihood of you paying back. So the best way you can make that number high is by always you know, making sure you make your payments. When it says there's a due date and you owe it on the bill, make sure you pay it on the due date at the very least, that minimum payment, which is the reason why I think I was very lucky in college with my credit cards, because I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was afraid to, to submit something late. And so I really cared a lot about those due dates. And because of that, I have a squeaky clean credit history. So I think if the younger you are, the more serious you can take your credit history and never send late payments, never miss a payment. And if you are, if you're going to like, let's be real, COVID impacted people a lot. And if you don't have the money to make a payment, don't ignore it. Don't run from it. Pick up your cell phone and call up that company and say, I am really struggling. I don't think I'm going to be able to make this payment. What can you do to help me out? Can we delay the payment another month? Can we lower the interest rate? Can we space out the amount into a smaller amount into a payment plan? Most lenders want to work with you because at the end of the day, they want their money back. And so however they can help you set yourself up to pay them back, they want to do that. They want to help you. I think a lot of young people, they tend to run from the, the problems, their bills, and the, you know, if something's overdue or if they don't think they can pay something, they just like ignore, ignore the bill collectors, ignore the bills, ignore the phone calls. And that's a big mistake. So you got to lean in and make sure your credit is healthy by taking control of it and being an advocate for yourself. 
The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of VantageScore Solutions. This podcast is brought to you by VantageScore Solutions, a higher level of confidence. Thanks for listening.